evening we come after a break in these studies to the seventh book of the Minor Prophets, Nahum, and a book which tends to be seriously overlooked. You very rarely ever hear people reading passages from the book of Nahum in any of the gatherings. You very rarely ever see any verse from the book of Nahum quoted in any letter or you never see it in a text that hangs on a wall. You, it's, one of the, it's almost the Cinderella of the Old Testament. Um, overlooked, uh, and not only overlooked, but I think that many of God's children tend to feel that the little book of Nahum has very little to say indeed, really, that has not in fact been said elsewhere in the Old Testament anyway. And I wonder how many of you, as you've read this little book of Nahum, have just wondered, has this got any message for me, or has it got any message really for us? It's a small book, and like Jonah and Obadiah, both of which are small books, it deals with the outside world. Although, of course, Jonah has a real message to us, who are God's children, and Obadiah even has a message for us, as God's children, both of them are really ministries that were exercised to the outside world, to the outsider, to those without the covenant of God, those who are not in any kind of relationship to God. It's a further example of a ministry exclusively toward the unsaved nations. And we must underline that because there are some Christians who seem to think that you ought never to give a message exclusively for unsaved people. But even in the Old Testament, there was, in some places, a ministry exclusive to the unsaved. And even some of the other great prophets, of course, who have in the course of their ministry delivered quite um, a lot of messages to the unsaved nations, even they have done that. These men, Nahum and Obadiah, seemed, as far as we know, at least from what is in Scripture, to have a ministry exclusively toward those without the covenant. Nahum makes no reference to any sin or failure on the part of God's children whatsoever, which is quite remarkable. And therefore, there is in this little book no mention of judgment on God's children. He is quite remarkable uh, in that there is not even an inference in this book of any kind of judgment or displeasure of the Lord over his own people. In fact, as far as God's children are concerned, Nahum's message is one of comfort and consolation. To them, it was a real consolation. It was a tremendous encouragement. It may not have been to anyone else, but to them, it was a comfort. In particular, Nahum needs to be understood alongside of the book of Jonah. These two books belong to each other. 
and um, they balance each other. And if you take one or other apart and alone, you must of necessity get a picture of the Lord dealing with the nations, with the unsaved, in, you must get a picture out of perspective. These two books, it cannot be overemphasized, must be seen in their relationship to one another. A lot of real trouble can result unless it is clearly seen that Nahum follows on the ministry of Jonah, although a century and a half later. And we shall be coming to that a little later, the Lord willing. It's been said that in the book of Jonah, we discover the mercy of God. And in the book of Nahum, we discover the justice of God. Certainly, if we are to understand the wrath of God, and there is such a thing, there is such a thing, it's not fashionable today to speak about the wrath of God. It's not fashionable to speak about the anger of God. Evidently, the 20th century feels that God is incapable of uh, such, um, uh, such things, of such emotions. But there is such a thing, and anyone who even knows their Bible superficially must recognize that the wrath of God is a theme, quite a theme, in, in, in the Scriptures. And if anyone of us is to come to an understanding of the wrath of God and really understand it, we must understand these two books together. For you see, in Nahum, we have revealed the full fury of the anger of God. It is because of that a book that is not popular. It is a frightening book, because in it we see God in the white heat of fury. And it is this, this evening, that we are going to look at. And I, I want to remind you, have said that this book is a comfort to God's people. Though I trust that by the time we've finished it will be a comfort to all of us. Nahum's style is an interesting one. It's clear, it's elegant, and it's brilliant. All scholarship gives to this little book an amount of praise out of all proportion to its size. It is called the grandest piece of literature as far as description goes, in the Old Testament. Um, it has been said that Nahum comes second only to Isaiah in the brilliance of his style. We have only three chapters of the ministry of this prophet, but it is quite clear that he is a remarkable man with a very real literary gift. He excels in the use of the most vivid descriptive powers. Perhaps that's one of the things that we ought just to stop for a few moments and look at. 
The thing that marks out uh, Nahum more than anyone else in the Old Testament of the prophets is his amazing use of descriptive powers. I'm going to read from Moffat just um, a passage that perhaps, although I'm not very keen on Moffat's version on the whole, um, this perhaps shows more than any other something of the power, the descriptive power of Nahum the prophet. Listen, from chapter 2. A shatterer has come up against you. Man your ramparts, stand to attention, summon up your strength. The shields of his heroes are crimson. The soldiers are clad in scarlet. His armoured chariots gleam like fire, and their horses prance at the muster. His chariots tear through the open country and gallop across the broad spaces, flashing like torches, darting like lightning. Then he masses the picked men. They charge ahead. They rush to the wall. The mantlet is fixed. The water gates are forced. The palace is in panic. The queen is stripped and carried off. Her ladies mourning like doves, beating their breasts. And Nineveh lies like a pool of water, with her folk flowing from her. Stand fast, stand fast, they cry, but none turns back. Loot the silver, loot the gold, no end to the plunder, treasures all untold. She is desolate, dreary, drained, hearts a fainting, knees are shaking, anguish settles on all loins, black fear on all faces. What has become of the lion's den, the lair of the young lions? Whither the lion, lion withdrew and the whelps with none to scare them? A lion who tore enough for his whelps and strangled for his mates, till he filled his lairs with prey, his dens with mangled carcasses. I attack you, says the Lord of hosts. I send up your lair in flames, and the sword shall devour your cubs. I will wipe your prey from the earth, and the threats of your envoys shall be heard no more. O city, soaked with blood, crammed with lies and plunder, no end to your ravaging, hark the swish of the whip, hark the thunder of the wheels, horses a-gallop, chariots hurtling along, cavalry charging, the flash of the sword, the gleam of the lance, the slain in heaps, dead bodies piled, no end to the corpses, men tripping over the dead. That gives you just a little uh, idea of the style. Moffat had an, uh, um, himself a quite remarkable gift in that way. Gives you just a little idea of Nahum's um, amazingly vivid powers of description. He makes the siege, a siege, live. Um, he, he makes um, a, a battlefield live before our very eyes. It, it all comes alive. We can see it happening. His powers of description. And then again, Another remarkable thing about the literary style of Nahum is his energetic directness. I give you just one example of this. Um, in chapter 1 and verse 14, the very last phrase, I will make your grave for you a vile. This is very, very direct. 
And this is one of the qualities of Nahum all the way through these three chapters of, of an energetic directness by which he takes, as it were, the bull by the horns and really faces it in very frank and clear language. Nearly the whole book is in poetic form, of which Nahum is evidently a master. Now, is there anything that we can say about the authorship and the date of this book? It claims to be, as you can see in chapter 1 and verse 1, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Apart from this one sentence, we know nothing about either Nahum or Elkosh. The liberal school of theology feels that the book only contains some of Nahum's work, the rest being added later because of its suitability. On the whole, however, most scholars accept the unity of this little book. Even those who believe that later material has been added concede the unity of theme throughout the material. They may not accept the unity of authorship, but they do all accept the unity of theme in the actual material. And those who feel that later on material has been added believe that it has been done so in this, it's been done uh, in this case because it was so suitable and seemed to belong to what was earlier. This is just the conclusion of the liberal school in this matter. There is in fact no real evidential basis for putting aside the authorship of Nahum. There is no other alternative, and it seems clear that we ought to leave it as it stands. What about the date of this little book? Nahum's prophecy, as I think you must have noted as you have read it, anticipates the fall of Nineveh. Therefore, we have got to date it before 612 BC. That's the first point. Another clear clue we discover in this little book is the reference by Nahum to the capture and the pillaging of Thebes. Or, as it is called in this um, little prophecy, Noamon. You'll find that in chapter 3 and in verse 8. Are you better than Thebes, the American Revised Standard Version puts it, but I think your version puts Noamon. And this, again, gives us another clue, because he speaks of this as an accomplished fact. He tells us what, in fact, happened at Thebes, how it was attacked, how he, he, he says to Nineveh, you think you are as strong as Thebes, but look at what happened to Thebes. Thebes thought that she would never, ever be overcome. She would never be uh, pillaged, sacked, and, and destroyed. But it happened. And Nahum is referring to the siege that took place in 664, approximately, we're not absolutely certain of that date, um, by the Assyrians under the leadership of Asabanipal, when Thebes was finally overcome and destroyed. So we have two dates. It must have been written after 664, and it must have been written before 612. More than that, we cannot say 
dogmatically. Many modern scholars would place this book in the years immediate to Nineveh's fall, but without sufficient real evidence. There's a feeling in some that the description of the siege of Nineveh is so vivid that it must have been written near to the crisis, when perhaps uh, it seemed clear uh, what was going to happen. We have two things we must say here. One is that there is no actual identification of the attackers. Although some scholars believe that because Nahum speaks of the um, soldiers, the uh, infantrymen being in red, in scarlet, that it was a reference to the Medes, who in fact wore scarlet in battle. Um, that's one point. There, there is in fact no actual identification, because scarlet was often a colour uh, used. And secondly, um, it is clear from Naum's prophecy and ministry that Assyrian power in Western Asia was at its height. Not at its height, but very strong. It hadn't receded. And just before the fall of Nineveh, uh, it had receded and weakened very considerably in Western Asia. From that, we learn simply that it, we cannot dogmatically place the date of this book except between the years 6, 664 and 612 B.C. We can say this, that these dates cover the end of the reign of Manasseh, one of the most evil kings of Judah, and Ammon his son, and cover the reign of one of the most godly and good kings in the whole uh, history of Judah, King Josiah. It is very, very interesting because these dates cover the last years of Manasseh. When those of you who will remember your, that when we studied uh, Kings and Chronicles, you will remember that um, Manasseh was so evil, but finally he went one step too far in his compromise and appeasement. He fell foul of the authorities and he was taken away remember, into exile for a while and imprisoned. And when he came back, he was a changed man. He repented. And we are told that in the last days of his reign, he tried to undo the evil which he had instituted in his earlier days. Now, it may well be that Nahum's uh, ministry began just round about that period. And he saw the first signs of perhaps a coming move of God's spirit. It was followed by two years of King Ammon's reign, who was as evil as his father. But, thank God, he was murdered. I don't know whether we should say that, but he was murdered and finished and put away. And Josiah came to the throne, and at the age of eight, you remember, had a very real experience of the Lord. And in his short life, he died on the battlefield at 39 years of age. You will remember, under, in his life, one of the greatest reformations took place in Israelite history. When, when in many, many ways... We are told the Lord gained back everything that had been lost. It was the greatest Passover since the days of Moses. you remember that? And um, in these days, Nahum, as far as we can tell, lived and ministered. I have a little more to say about that in a moment.
So it seems to us that it's quite clear that, the, that we cannot put aside the authorship of Nahum and we must date this book somewhere between these two extremes, 664-612. Now, can we say anything about the background of Nahum? Nahum means comfort or comforter, a singularly inappropriate name as far as his ministry goes toward the Assyrians, but a singularly appropriate name as far as his ministry goes in relation to God's own people. And I am sure that in the wisdom of God, his name had a meaning for his own, although it may not have had any meaning to those outside the covenant. We know hardly anything about Nahum. We know nothing about him himself. We don't know what kind of man really he was, except from this little book that we have. We don't know anything about his family. We don't know anything about his standing. Was he from the aristocracy? Was he from the peasant class? We don't really know, except that his style is exceedingly elegant. We don't know anything about his occupation. Again, it would be very interesting if we did know this. We don't even know where he lived. There's great um, discussion as to where exactly Nahum lived. We don't really even know that. It is clear that he came from Elkosh, but we can't even identify that nowadays. Um, we cannot locate the situation of Elkosh. There are three main theories concerning this place which would give us a clue to the background, a little more to the background, of, um, of Nahum. The first is that it was in modern Iraq. Over here. And um, 27 miles north of Mosul, there is a place that is even, well, up to recently visited by Christian and Jewish and Muslim pilgrims, where the tomb of Nahum is shown. But for those of us who know little about the East, we know that it abounds with tombs of saints, and they are by no means uh, proved. So... Um, this is one of the traditions. It has a strong tradition behind it, but it does not seem to go back before the 16th century, which naturally makes us question it. Um, if it is true, it means that Nahum was a descendant of the families that were deported from the northern kingdom, from Israel to Assyria in 722 or 23. Um, and he would have been... Uh, one of the later generations, two or three generations afterwards, that grew up in Assyria. Uh, if that is so, then we would understand perhaps a little bit more why he had Nineveh so much on his heart and why he felt so very strongly about Nineveh. He would have seen firsthand something of the cruelty of Nineveh. He would have understood something of its wantonness and it, the luxury of its capital. He would have understood something of its commerce, of its harlotry. He would have understood very much because he lived there, he was brought up there, and he saw it from the inside. That is one theory. The second theory is that it is a village in Galilee, which, um, again, uh, present cannot be traced. It was um, Jeremy, I believe, said that he was shown this village by guides in the 4th century, and, um, but now we don't really know where it is. There are one or two ideas folk have about it. 
Uh, Ellison points out that it is interesting that Capernaum is just the Greek transliteration of Hebrew, which means the village of Naum. And if that is so, it could possibly, although there must have been many other Naums, of course, um, it could possibly embody a tradition about the um, birth of um, the birthplace um, of Naum. If this theory is true, then he was a descendant of the very poor peasants who were left behind when all the professional classes and aristocracy were deported from Palestine to Assyria. Then he would have been one of the generations after, 722 or 3, that were left in the Northern Kingdom. The third theory is that it is a village in Judah in the territory of Simeon. Um, somewhere near Gaza and Lakish, between these two, um, the theory is that it was a village there. Um, those are the three theories about the little word Elkosh, which if only we knew where it was and could identify it would give us a lot more understanding of the background of the prophet Nahum. The first two theories are supported by tradition, although not well-founded. The last is favoured by most modern scholarship. It is clear that Nahum's sentiments lie with Judah. He mentions Judah a number of times in his little uh, prophecy, and um, it is clear that that's where his heart really lay. Another suggestion made is that his family was one of the families that fled from the northern kingdom to the southern, from Israel to Judah, when the Assyrians came in. And we know for a fact that many did at that time. Later on, um, you remember Hezekiah held a great uh, Passover to which he asked all to come together. Um, it could be that uh, um, Naomi's family was one of those who fled from the, um, they saw, as it were, the wind of change blowing, and they got out of Israel into Judah and settled in Judah. That's one, again, one of the theories. But we have nothing concrete. And, in fact, the Holy Spirit has decided not to give us uh, anything really concrete about the background of the prophet Nahum. What is clear? is that his ministering in the latter part of Manasseh's reign and through Josiah's reign. So it would seem that he lived during a period of spiritual renewal, enlightenment, and reconstruction. He lived at the period when the book of the law was discovered and when the young king Josiah was completely transformed by the reading of that book of the law. And when he not only uh, listened to it and was moved by it, but the whole country was transformed by what Josiah heard and understood in the book of the law. Um, he would have not only lived in that period, which began really in many ways with the repentance of Manasseh, and did not, in fact, receive so severe a setback even in the two years of King Ammon's evil reign, he would have lived in it when it found its greatest expression in Josiah's day. This might possibly explain the absence 
of any denunciation concerning God's people in this book. Because it was a day of spiritual enlightenment and reconstruction when the whole trend seemed to be back toward God and back toward faithfulness to the covenant and to God's word. Uh, it is very interesting in chapter 1 and, and verse 15 to read this, the last part of it. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows. I wonder if there is any reference there to the great feast of the Passover, which had been kept in the days of Josiah. It is a, we know from uh, Kings and Chronicles that Josiah reinstituted the great feasts according to God's word. And so here you have a reference from Nahum about keeping your feasts and performing your vows, O Judah. His contemporaries, who were the contemporaries of Nahum? They would have been Zephaniah, they would have been Jeremiah, and they would have been Habakkuk. Zephaniah was probably a little older than Nahum. Jeremiah would have just been a very young man in these days. Of course, we don't know how old Nahum really was. We've got just no clue to go on. But these were his contemporaries. It is also very interesting, I always find this very interesting myself, um, to note the way he quotes Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah once very clearly uh, here in chapter 115, we've read it. Behold on the mountains the feet of, of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. And that is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7. Rather interesting, isn't it? Nahum's ministry centred in Nineveh, which we have already described in previous studies. I don't think there's much need to go back. But as we've, um, this is the first of our studies again for a rather a while, I thought we might just remind ourselves that Nineveh was one of the great, the, the, the great metropolis of a world empire of its day. I think we ought just to underline that. Um, and it was famed, famed for its utter disregard for human rights and liberties. The Syrians of all the ancient empires were known for their cruelty, their hardness, their intensity, and their cruelty. I'm going to read a rather, again, somewhat vivid um, account here in Scroggie's, Dr. Scroggie's unfolding drama of redemption. I'm only going to read a little bit, but I want just to refresh your minds about the cruelty of um, those days. Here we, uh, I read just from part, page 382. Speaks about the palaces. Um, hanging gardens filled with rich plants, rare animals served with other temples and palaces, libraries and arsenals to adorn and enrich the city, and all was built by the labour of foreign slaves. These people ruled with hideous tyranny and violence from the Caucasus and the Caspian to the Persian Gulf, and from beyond the Tigris to Asia Minor and Egypt. The Assyrian kings literally tormented the world. They flung away the bodies of soldiers like so much clay. They made pyramids of human heads. They sacrificed holocausts of their sons and daughters of their enemies. They burned cities. They filled populous lands with death and devastation. They reddened broad deserts with carnage of warriors. 
They scattered whole countries with the corpses of their defenders as with chaff. They impaled heaps of men on stakes and strewed the mountains and choked the rivers with dead bones. They cut off the hands of kings and nailed them on the walls and left their bodies to rot with bears and dogs on the entrance gates of the cities. They cut down warriors like weeds or smote them like wild beasts in the forests and covered pillars with the flayed skins of rival monarchs. Rather a gripping description. But just to give you a little uh, idea of the cruelty of Nineveh. We must also remember, when we, can't, when we talk about the background of Nahum, that some 130 to 150 years previously, Jonah had preached a message of judgment. I'd like to just point out Nineveh here. Jonah had preached a message of judgment, you will remember, as recorded in the little book of Jonah, 130 to 150 years previous. Now, Nahum proclaims a judgment. In Jonah's day, you will remember, because the people repented, the Lord deferred the judgment. It's one of the great interesting points of the sovereignty of God. He deferred the judgment. He told them that in 40 days it would be overthrown, but in fact he deferred it for something like 130 to 150 years. Finally, and truly finally, Nahum comes forward with his message of the judgment of God, and this time it's a full end that the Lord has determined on Nineveh. It took place so finally this time that Nineveh vanished under the sands, never really to be known, vanished off the face of the earth until some hundred or so years ago when the first excavations began. It is one of the most remarkable facts that such a great metropolis could simply vanish under the sands and not even be known almost. It was thought some centuries ago to be almost a myth, something that was just thought up. And one other little point about the background of Nahum, which really has perhaps little bearing upon our study of the book, but it is interesting. Tradition traces the rise of Zoroaster, the great Persian religious leader, to the influence of Nahum. And some of you will remember in our studies in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah that Zoroaster did have a place to play uh, later. Now, what about the key to this book? What can we say about the key to this little book of Nahum? Nahum reveals to us something of the anger of, of God. A superficial reading of the first verses will reveal that. You've only got to glance down the first chapter, down the first verses of the first column, and you will see that straight away that this book reveals something of the anger of God. No more than the anger of God, I think we must call it the wrath of God. Listen, avenging, wrathful, Vengeance, wrath, anger, indignation, heat of his anger, 
rose poured out like fire. This is enough just to make us realize that the key to this little book is contained really in these words, vengeance, wrath, anger. And also we might add to that two other phrases, well they're the same actually, in chapter 2 verse 13, behold I am against you, says the Lord of hosts, and in chapter 3 and verse 5, behold I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. We have to bring these together, and when we do, we come near to what is the heart of Naum's message. Essentially, Naum has really only one thing to say, and he says that one thing effectively and intensely. Naum is a wonderful handling of the conflict between God and a satanized world. Really, this book deals primarily with Nineveh and Assyria, but in fact, it deals with the age-old problem of God in his righteousness and holiness and love on one side, and great world systems built on human enslavement and kept going by the very harlotry of commerce. On the other side, two things, if I may so use the word, that are absolute opposites. And the, the conflict is this, that somehow the world power, if you like, seems to be so triumphant and so impregnable. And God, on the other hand, seems to be so distant, so unmoved, so uncaring, so seemingly unaware. He allows these great powers to come onto the scene and onto the platform, and he seems to allow them to have such a full and a free way. They're able to send thousands into eternity. They're able to enslave the thousands that live. They're able to build up huge monuments to self-aggrandizement, self-deification. All this, and God doesn't seem to care. And the book of Nahum really deals with the problem, does God care? Does God really care? Because, you see, when you come to it, this little book doesn't only deal with the problem of a world power challenging the living God. No. It is dealing with something as old as history, something that is energized by the great adversary of God and which reappears in human history again and again in different guises. But whether it is Nineveh, or whether it's Babylon, or later on whether it's Rome, or today whatever it might be, it, it has reappeared in another guise, but it's the same thing. 
And it's something which seemingly can challenge God. It seemingly can get away with corruption. It can get away with injustice. It can get away with evil. This is the problem. The wicked spreading himself like a banyan tree. And the righteous seemingly afflicted almost to the point of death. It's the conflict between all that is just and good and all that is unjust and evil. It goes beyond merely the realm of God's own and the world. It deals with man's inhumanity and cruelty to man. Because Assyria did not only oppress God's people, Assyria oppressed every single nation that came within the orbit of its influence. It crushed mercilessly everything it could, like a huge centurion tank. It just mowed down everything before it. And the problem of the prophet is, why does God allow it? For mark you, Assyria was not just a flash in the pan. Not just a shooting star. It didn't just happen within a century and go out as we've seen Nazism go, come and go. No, this was something that slowly built up its power over centuries of time. And somehow the question amongst the faithful God's own people was, does God really care? Is he really mindful of all that is happening? And you know this is a problem which many of you, as I said earlier this evening, this book may seem to have little to say to you at present. But you know, if you have a heart big enough to take in the whole world, this book has a lot to say to you. For if any of you have had anything to do with people who suffered in the concentration camp, or anywhere else in the war, you will know that the cry of so many of their hearts is, Why? Can there really be a God who can allow not just old people, but babies to be exterminated in their thousands? This is the problem of the Book of Nahum. The problem really, essentially, is one of the justice of God. Unrighteousness seems to pay. That's the point. The very patience of God seems to be used for more evil. The fact that he stands back, the very fact that he doesn't act, is taken by, by those that are in this thing to, to be just a sign that God is not and that it pays to be unjust. That's really the point of this book. And to go even deeper, the very patience of God seems to fortify the spirit and strength of Antichrist. So Robert Anderson once wrote a book a century ago and he called it The Silence of God. 
because he dealt really with partly something of this very problem, the silence of God. God standing by when people are butchered, left, right and centre, silent. It's a problem. It's a big problem. And this is the problem of this book. It is a handling of the problem of man's injustice to man and of the seeming prosperity of evil and of the inactivity of God. Again, from another point, it handles the conflict between the daughter of Zion and the harlot of the nation. And I think most of you will know that when we come to the end of the Bible, we've got just that. We've got the bride on one side and the harlot that's drunken in her own immoralities. She's dressed in the same way as the bride. Purple, scarlet, she's got fine linen, she's dressed in gold and pearls. She's a counterfeit of the real thing. This is the conflict here. This harlot of the nations, and on the other side, the daughter of Judah or the daughter of Zion. On, on one side, something so big, so, so powerful, so strong, and so wrong. And on the other side, something so afflicted, so broken, so weak, and so right. It is the problem of the good seed, as the Quakers used to say, and the bad seed. And the Bible traces the good seed and the bad seed. And in the very first chapters of Genesis, we find that this city, Nineveh, is traced to the bad seed. It's traced to the bad seed. It's the old, age-old conflict of the good seed versus the bad seed. And then again, look at it in another way. It is the old battle, the old conflict, the old animosity between the city of God and this other city. Later, of course, it's called Babylon. But it's the same idea. On the one side, something that's a counterfeit of the wheel, built up by human ingenuity, kept going by human and satanic energy. And on the other side, something that's come out from God, out of heaven, produced by the life of God. This is the background of the little book of Nahum, of the message that Nahum brings to us. It is a message that you and I could well receive this evening. You see, Nahum reveals to us with all this background, he reveals the absolute majesty, the absolute almightiness, the absolute sovereignty of God. He calls this a vision. And his first words are a vision of the almighty God going out, going out. It may seem to God's children, it may seem to Judah, that God is silent, that God is inactive. But Nahum tells them God is absolutely omnipotent. God is absolutely sovereign. He's got everything in his hands. That's the first thing. 
But the second thing Nahum reveals, and I might say that just because of that, it is frightening, is that this sovereign, almighty, majestic God is in the white heat of fury. That's how Nahum sees him. He doesn't see a cool, calm God, but he sees him in the white heat of a fury, wrathful, wrathful, poured out like a fire, the heat of his anger, indignant, jealous, vengeful. And you see, Nahum sees a wonderful thing. From this kind of God, justice is spontaneous. God may wait, but justice always is in the end exercised and done. You see, really, Nahum tells us that he really proceeds from his vision of the law to insist on the triumph of justice. Nahum is really saying, you've got a small God. Your God, Judah, is like the idols of the nations. But he, he is the living God. And because he is the living God, he's got emotions and feelings. He loves, but he hates. That's really what Nahum's saying. And because of that, justice must triumph in the end. It may take a long time, but it will triumph. And then you see, he says really, justice is a moral necessity. He, 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 he clearly shows us that in this, in this uh, little book. He tells us what Nineveh's like. He tells us that it's a city soaked in blood, crammed full with lies and plunder. He's really saying, justice is a moral necessity. There, there is no rhyme or reason to life if in the end there's no justice. Justice is a moral necessity, but just wait. It is a natural outcome of what God is. That's all. So you and I have nothing to fear. You see, the wonder of it all is that God is slow to anger. And just because he's slow to anger, when he is angry, it is terrible. We all know that. Even in human life, the person who gets quickly angry is not, not nearly as bad as a person who rarely gets angry. But when that person who really gets angry does finally become angry, oh, what a fury when finally they are, their ire is aroused. But that's, that's only just on this fallen human plane, isn't it? God is slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. The book of Jonah reveals to us that he longed to defer judgment. When he got the slightest excuse, he put it off for 150 years or thereabouts. He only had to speak of the children. 
Even the prophet Jonah fell out with him over it. But he, he rebuked Jonah and said to Jonah, What about the beasts, Jonah? What about the animals? What about the children who can't tell they're left from their right hand? Do you understand? If God can be as patient, as understanding, as sympathetic as that, how terrible his anger must be when finally it worked up to the white heat of a fury. It must be the most frightening and the most terrible thing to behold in the whole universe when once someone so patient, so long-suffering, so sympathetic, finally, finally, becomes furious. And it's very important for us to understand what God's judgment is. It's very important for us, and that's why this little book of Nahum's been written partly, that we might understand it. It is not fashionable today to speak about the judgment of God. It's not fashionable to talk about the wrath of God. The anger of God is evidently something that belongs to the prehistoric ages, or to the very, at the very latest, to uh, the Middle Ages. Possibly there were one or two like Wesley who lived out, out of due time and uh, uh, mentioned these things. But generally speaking, um, the anger of God is something that should have gone out uh, many centuries ago. It is very important for us, therefore, to understand God's judgment. It is often presented to us as if it's cruel, vindictive, unpremeditated and uncontrollable. And because of that, people have reacted against it. They have thought of some irate Victorian father who got so angry that he couldn't control himself and in his fury just beat everything and everyone. And they seem to think that God's anger and fury is that kind of anger and fury. It is not. It's done untold harm, this mentality over the judgment of God. And some preachers as well have taken upon their lips to use these words in far too light and superficial a way, and thereby have done very much and great injury. If we took Nahum alone, we might be allowed to have such a conception. But we must take it with the prophet Jonah. You see, what we have to remember is the love and the sympathy of God which he showed in the days of Jonah when he deferred judgment. When you understand that, you understand God's judgment. It's not capricious. It's not unpremeditated. It's not uncontrollable. It's not just a sudden whim of God, a sudden fancy of God. No. It is something that he loathes to do. But his love finally makes him do it. And you know, we must remember that it, Jonah himself had an argument with the Lord over this very issue. You remember he was so angry about it, he went out and sat outside waiting for the 40 days to transpire. 
just to see whether the Lord might change his mind. And you can understand after what we've read about Nineveh, can't you? You can have perhaps a little bit of sympathy with Jonah. You might well have felt that Jonah, the Lord's getting sentimental. He shouldn't be like this. He said he's going to judge them. They're a wicked, evil people. Look at their history. Hundreds of years of it. The Lord should do it. But no, the Lord's not like that. Their full measure of iniquity had not been reached. And whilst there is time, God waits. But when finally that time comes, God acts. And when God acts, nothing deters him. You see, all this gives to the judgment of God an awesome quality of absolute justice and righteousness. It makes it the more terrible because of its rightness. Dr. Campbell Morgan once said this, to believe in his love is to be sure of his wrath. In the hour in which you persuade me that God cannot be angry, you have persuaded me that God cannot love. I repeat, to believe in the love of God is to be sure of his wrath. In the hour in which you persuade me that God can never be angry, you have persuaded me that he cannot love. Because the very anger and wrath of God is the dark side of his love. That's all. That's all. It is just because he loves so much that he can be so righteously angry. And you see, as one views world history in the present scene, one must believe surely in the anger of God. Look at it. From the, very, from the great world systems, from human injustice on a national or international scale, right down, to things like economic unrighteousness, social unrighteousness, right down to the vice king who holds in his grip scores of women who cannot get free, to the dope peddler who peddles dope and wrecks and perverts youngsters left, right and centre. to the commercial cutthroat who will smash a family business in an instant by dirty methods to child cruelty oh I was terribly um, uh, sort of um, tempted uh, this evening to bring pictures to go out and get some pictures of child cruelty and just show them to you and then I'm going to say to you See these. 
Now tell me, do you believe God never gets angry? These things force us to the conclusion that God can get angry. All these things are going on in the world tonight, and these people are becoming fat and prosperous. They live in luxurious homes. Some of you have seen some of those boys that come in. They look more like women. They are not to blame. There are people living in lovely homes who are, who are peddlers in dope. And they're the ones that, that work God, as it were, into the white heat of a fury. They think they're so clever. They think they're so cure, secure. They think they're so decent. But you see, they are the ones that are the objective of the wrath of God. And it doesn't matter whether it's on a little local scale, or whether it's in one family, or whether it's in a nation, or whether it's on the international scene. It's all the same. And it is that, that is the, the point, if you like, the focal point that draws out the anger of God. No, there have been days and there will be days of the wrath of God. When Rome was sacked and overthrown, it was a day of the wrath of God. When Babylon fell, to the Persians, it was a day of the wrath of God. And when Nineveh fell, it was a day of God's wrath. And you can say that, for every nation and every government in this world is answerable to God. And they're judged by the light that they have. And there have been days of God's wrath. Even the bombing of Germany, though it may not bring any echo in your hearts, was a day of God's anger. For the six million, the twenty million in all, or six million Jews that died in the concentration camps. It was a day of God's anger, and every world power that has been has known a day. If it has ruled in unrighteousness and in and in and in and in injustice, has known a day of God's wrath. There will be more of those days. So long as human history takes its course, God seems silent, God seems inactive, but finally God acts, and when he acts, it's no more. It's gone. It's finished with. It's a full end, like an overflowing flood, as Nahum said. Will I make a full end of you? It's gone. It's finished. It's over. But above all, there is a day coming the day of the wrath of God. When scripture says the wrath of God will be revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And we're told that in that day everything will flee from the wrath of God. Everything will flee from the face of God. You and I, oh that we might, might be in Christ where there is no condemnation. That we might be hidden in him washed in the blood of the Lamb, part of that great bride of his. Oh, that we might be there. 
Otherwise, otherwise, what a day when men will cry to the rocks to fall upon them, get into the holes of the earth, not to hide themselves from one another, but to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. What a terrible thing. And what a paradox, the wrath of the little Lamb. I say, that is far more terrible than the wrath of a great, strong father or man, schoolmaster. No, the wrath of a little lamb will be the most frightening thing this world has ever witnessed. When finally, at the end of time, God arises to put an end to every injustice, to wipe out every wrong, and to purge these very this very earth and these very heavens by fire of every single stain and defilement. No. God forbore with Nineveh for many centuries, but when finally he acted, Nineveh sank beneath the sands for thousands of years. And there'll come a day when all that you and I put up with, and all that is so difficult, all that we see of injustice in every realm, God will finally deal with. And it will be no more. When he's dealt with it, it will be no more. After that, you will look for it, but you will not find it. It's gone. The, the ages of time are over. And so, you see, for the church, for the child of God, that will mean a final deliverance, a vindication and glory. Now, we have just a few minutes. I think I've covered, at least in a very small way, something of the what they all. I have just put up here very, very roughly indeed an outline of the little book. Very easy. It falls into three and for once the chapter divisions are absolutely right. The first uh, division is the a vision of the anger of God, a declaration, judgment, um, chapter 1. The second division is the judgment of Nineveh described. Um, 2. And the third is the fierceness and fury of that judgment defended. You see, if you just look very briefly at Nahum 1, as I've said, Nahum is dealing with Assyria, but the problem is as old as humanity. And the question is, does God care? And if you see in this chapter 1, you see he has a vision of a sovereign, almighty God. And then you see that this vision leads to three things. In verse 3, the second part, to absolute justice absolute justice. He will by no means clear the guilty. That's strong. He will by no means clear the guilty.
penalty. Let him live to a hundred. Let him bury it. Let him forget it. God will not clear him. Be sure your sin will find you out. He will by no means clear the guilty. Secondly, the unbelievable patience of God. That comes out of what? His sovereignty? Yes. Only someone utterly omnipotent could be so utterly patient. And God, because he is so almighty, can just stand by. It's all under control. And that you find in 3, verse 3, the first part, the Lord is slow to anger. And it is very interesting, of great might. I see Moffat's changed that to rich in love. Moffat had a habit sometimes of doing that. He felt probably that that's what it was originally. But I personally think it's rather wonderful that he says the Lord is slow to anger and of great might. Because his slowness to anger is linked to his great might. A person who gets very quickly irritable is usually a small person. Because you don't feel you're in control. But when you're in absolute control, you don't have to get so irritable. Slow to anger because of great might. And then, uh, lastly, a final fury comes from it too. Verse 8 and 9. You see, well, with an overflowing flood, he will make a full end of his adversaries. Final fury. That comes also from it. These three things. Absolute justice. Unbelievable patience. Final fury. God's anger. Well, we've, we've, we've mentioned those. I won't go through them again. All those words in those first verses there and then in this chapter we also see that this vision of the anger of God is a comfort to God's people and every single word to God's people here in this chapter is one of comfort verse 7 the Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble he knows those who take refuge in him verse 12 though I have afflicted you I will afflict you no more 13 I will break his yoke from off you verse 15 behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. So the anger of the Lord means peace to his people. That's rather strange, isn't it? If you go by the general understanding of the anger and wrath of God. But when you understand the wrath of God, then you will understand how it can be both a comfort and a peace and a joy to God's own people. And uh, then you will also see then in this chapter three things about the anger of God. The first is the justice of God is satisfied. The second is the faith of his own is vindicated. And the third is the evil of this world is destroyed. Then the second chapter, um, I have to say the judgment of Nineveh described. You have first an amazingly vivid account of the assault, the pillage, and the destruction of Nineveh. And then, in secondly, you ought to note verse 13. Ah, behold, I am against you, says the Lord. And this is very interesting. It's the unknown, unseen God judging what is known and seen. It's very, very interesting that those who put God outside of their knowledge are yet judged by him. He's still there. And this is a great comfort. Because I, I fear that some Christians think that because an atheistic government puts God 
out of its, out of its books, out of its knowledge, out of its, as it were, routine. Uh, God evidently doesn't exist. Far from it. God is there as much as ever. And he judges just the same. Everything comes under the eye of his judgment. And then to here, I, one little point I would like to make. Uh, it, chapter 2 and verse 2 um, is, in, is a parenthesis. It's very interesting. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. I wonder why that's there. I wonder why that's there. For the plunderers have stripped them and ruined their branches. Now, why is that? That amazing reference to Jacob and Israel. I can't help wondering, is this a reference to Jabbok? <clears throat> Listen. For plunderers have stripped them and ruined their branches. Do you think that what, it's an aside of Nahum, that may be very helpful to God's people, oh... God's children, you're, you're, you're just like Jacob. But the very plundering and the stripping is going to turn you into Israel. Do you think that? I can't help wondering. I see no other point in this a marvellous little aside than that really Naomi is saying this. Who was used of God to change Jacob into Israel? Laban and Esau. And who will turn God's people from Jacob into Israel? Assyria? Or any other great power? Yes. And who will be used in the hand of God to conform you and me to the image of God's Son, Satan, and this world? God will use them, as well as one another. And then in the last chapter, chapter 3, um, the fierceness and fury of the judgment defended. What an amazing this word um, Moffat um, uses here. That city, he says, soaked with blood, crammed full with lies and You know, that's a, that's a fitting epitaph for human history. That city is soaked with blood, crammed full of lies and plunder. A harlot of the nations you have been. Hmm? Spiritual harlotry. We all know that in every part, life as we know it here is built in a lie. And even told by the Lord to use the mammon of unrighteousness. It's like that. It's as deep and as full and as complex as that. The tears grow up with the wheat. But the day is coming when that's going to all be sorted out. There'll be no more mammon of unrighteousness then coming. Here. Even the nations in this last chapter acclaim the judgment of Assyria. And this is the most remarkable thing of all. That finally, says the prophet, 
Who, who will come? Who will comfort you, Syria? Who will comfort you, Nineveh? No one will. There's not a soul who has any sympathy for you. Not a soul. Now listen. When God's wrath finally falls upon this world, there will be not one person who in the end will take any other side than God's. It will be acclaimed. You know in the book of Revelation, the last great picture of world history is of it going up in smoke. And it says, all the merchants of the earth wail because the great city is going up in smoke. But then it takes you into another world where there's no wailing and no mourning but a tremendous hallelujah chorus. The thing's finished. It's done with. This great harlot, this awful abomination this lie, this beast, it's done with, over, it's, it's destroyed. Well, uh, you also will shout a big hallelujah in that day unless you've got a foot in it. But if you've got a foot in it, then you will be sorry. Like Lot's wine, you'll be tempted to look back with a little bit of sorrow. But if you've seen something of its wickedness, something of its injustice, something of its slavery, you'll be only too glad to see the thing finally come under the hand of the wrath of God and be that's the message then of the book of Nahum. Somber. It's a somber message. Yes. But we need it. Because most of us are young. We lived through the last world war. And perhaps we were rather innocent. We've seen some things since then. But it may well be that in the days that lie ahead. We shall see many, many things that will wrench out from us a cry. Does God care? Why doesn't he act? And if we are near the end of human history, we shall live in such days. And then perhaps the book of Nahum will come back to us. It will be a comfort to us. It will be an encouragement to us. It will help us to realize that God is the same. Yesterday and today and forever. And from him proceeds a triumphant justice. Shall we pray?